That's right. Let's pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the cross of Jesus means everything to us. For where would we be with what he has done for us? He came, the eternal son came into this world for one purpose, and that is to save his people from their sins. And he has accomplished the task. And the Holy Spirit has applied that wonderful work to us. And so when this short life is over, we will be forever and ever with our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. We are in starting John chapter 15. We're going to look at one of the uh, great metaphors in the, in the, the New Testament. It is one that's uh, common throughout the Scripture. And it's of such significance that um, I'm going to spend some time on, on verses 1 through 8 because of its, uh, all the theology that is packed in to these eight verses you know, this is a, it's a most wonderful illustration that is given here of the nature of the church of the Lord Jesus. It distinguishes the true from the false disciples. And this is, was one of the, la- this, the last opportunity that Jesus had with his disciples on earth to warn them, do not be like Judas Iscariot. And it was an opportunity for his disciples to manifest the work of the Holy Spirit and do not manifest the work of the flesh and the work of of Satan, our great adversary. So this this illustration is not, it was basically a common illustration in the scriptures. An Israelite, uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, was compared to or national Israel, to fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness. Now, this idea of the vine is used multiple times, and I think it would be worth our time to take a look at several passages in the Old Testament to show you how this was a common uh, metaphor in the Old Testament. And the first passage I want us to, to turn to is Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80 in verses 8 and 9. Talking about God, it says, Thou didst remove a vine from Egypt. Thou didst drive out the nations and didst plant it. Thou didst clear the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Referencing national Israel. Turn with me over to, uh, well, then all, we need to look at verse um, 14 before we move out of Psalm 80. Look at Psalm 80, verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech thee, look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. So vine is used as an illustration of the nation. 
Turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And just think about that for a moment where he says, what more could I have done than what I have done? This is God, Jehovah, speaking with reference to his nation. I've done everything. I expected it to produce grapes. It didn't produce grapes. It produced, it was fruitless. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to consume it. That's what I'm going to do. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel 17, verses 1 through 8. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon, took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the foremost of its young twigs, brought it to a land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. He also took some of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Then it sprouted and became a low spreading vine with its branches turned toward him. But its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and yielded shoots and sent out branches. But there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him, sent out its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil beside abundant waters that it might yield branches and bear fruit and become a splendid vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its sprouting leaves wither, and neither by great strength nor by many people can it be raised from its roots again? Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it? 
wither on the beds where it grew. Very common imagery. Very sad for what God has done and what has happened to what he is, uh, to that soil. And then turn over to Malachi, the last one we'll look at in the Old Testament. Turn to Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, verses 10 and 11. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good uh, fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his wintering fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now your quiz for the night is, who in the New Testament said that? Okay, time's up. John the Baptist, Matthew 3. Remember when, uh, so I want you to turn over Did I not just read that? Got the right. Um. <laughs> anyway, hold on here. I just read you the New Testament passage. Is what I did, and uh, sorry about that. No, that that instant with John the Baptist is. He was baptizing many in the Jordan River and the Sadducees and Pharisees came up and he said to them, who told you to flee the wrath to come? And they thought they were children of Abraham. And then he, he says to them, no, look, God has already laid an ax uh, to the tree. And he said, now, if you bear fruit, you need to bear fruit indicative of, <clears throat> Uh, of being a proper branch, and yet you didn't. And what's God going to do? He's going to cut the tree down, and he's going to throw it into the fire and burn it. Now, in this regard, what we see, if you turn over back to John, I'm just sort of giving an overview of John 15, and then we're going to break it down into the verses I want to give an overall picture of it 
because of its great significance throughout the New Testament, I, I trust as we're going to see, the overall lesson that Jesus is seeking to convey to his disciples is that Jesus, he is the vine and we, we are the branches. And the branch only bears fruit as it abides in the vine. Now hence, we're going to see spiritual uh, believers will bear spiritual fruit only when they abide in Jesus Christ because he is the life-giving force. And just like a, a vine dresser <clears throat> works with a vine, pruning it and the like, we see that the branch will get its nourishment only as it gets nourishment from the vine. So <clears throat> what we see in John 15, verses 1 through 8, is that there are two groups of people that are being described. And these are the branches that bear fruit, and they are the branches who do not bear fruit. So two groups, fruit bearers and non-fruit bearers. That's who Jesus is talking about. We're going to see that those uh, fruit, or those branches that bear fruit do so because they are, have been cleansed. And the branches that are not bearing fruit have not been cleansed and will be taken away and they will be burned. Now, <clears throat> what we see here, Judas had a very close relationship with Jesus, did he not? He was one of the 12 disciples. He was one that Jesus allowed to come along with him. And we see, if you just turn back in John uh, to chapter 13, verse 18, for this cause also the multitude went and met with him. And, uh, well, I need, hold on. John 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And we saw he's referring to Judas and Jesus is quoting Psalm 41 where it says a close friend will lift up his heel against him. So he was prophesying Judas Iscariot's betrayal. Judas had a close relationship. Got to remember, Judas went out preaching with the rest. Jesus, Judas saw all the miracles that Jesus performed. So he was with him for three years. Close proximity with Jesus. However, Judas was on his way to eternal destruction. And he was a branch that was not bearing fruit. And he would be taken away and he would be burned. Well, the scripture talks about when he betrayed Jesus and saw that he betrayed innocent blood, he threw the money back 
into the Sanhedrin, went out and hanged himself. And the scripture says that, uh, <clears throat> for example, it's, it's Acts one twenty five that says Judas went to his own place. Remember, they replaced, since there was a loss of one of the disciples, the disciples decided to cast lots to, to, to replace Judas, and they chose Matthias. And, but it's told there, Judas went to his own place. Now, in distinction from Judas Iscariot are the disciples, the other 11 disciples, whom Jesus declares to be clean. They are clean, but not Judas. Take a look at um, John 13, 10 and 11. Turn back, John, turn back to John 13, look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus talking to the others, he says, Jesus said to him, Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Obviously referring to Judas. And then we see in our text in John 15, verse 3, we'll break this down a little bit more, more fully a little bit later, but back in John 15, 3, he says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So you got two groups of people. You got those who are clean and those who are unclean. You got those who bear fruit and those who don't bear fruit. You got 11 disciples who are clean. You got one who is unclean. You got 12 to 11 disciples bearing fruit and you got one who is not bearing fruit and who is unclean. Two groups of people in this vine illustration, this metaphor. So <clears throat> these branches that do not bear fruit, nonetheless, they are in close contact with the, uh, with the vine, with Jesus and the gospel. And that's important for us to recognize. So what do the two groups of individuals have in common? Both are in contact with Jesus and the gospel. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. What he is talking about is the visible church. And we're gonna see that in this visible church there is a distinction. We'll clarify that a little bit later and we're gonna look at our confession of faith. It has excellent chapter regarding this. I mean, you've seen, uh, the, the, rich, the real issue then is this. Is a branch truly abiding in Jesus, the vine, or isn't it? If it doesn't abide in Jesus, then it is spiritually dead and it is thrown away and it is burned. Now, you've probably seen it yourself if you've been around in your yard or garden 
I remember when I was at our mission work in Corpus Christi house we had, we were down there four and a half years. And uh, we were in this one house for about at least two years. And there was these bushes that during, uh, well, it's often a very moderate climate down there anyway. There, there's this bush, it was green. And there was this, right next to it was this bush, same bush, uh, same species. And it was barren. And it looked bad. Another year went by, same thing, green over here. This one, not, uh, this looked bad. And I finally figured out, I said, you know, I bet you one is probably dead. Have you ever tried to pull up a, a, a flourishing bush? You ain't going to get it up, are you? Because it's got some deep roots. And it's, it's lively. You know that one I decided to test out, that one I'd seen for two years? I got a branch and it just broke right off. And then I gave one jerk and guess what? The whole thing came out. I said, yep, this thing is dead. And Jesus has given this illustration. There are some branches that are on the tree, the vine, but there are some branches that are doing fine and the other branches aren't doing well. You probably got a tree in your yard. I know in our backyard, we got several. And during the spring, it starts blossoming, and yet there's part of the tree and branches doesn't have any uh, green shoots on it. And you, you, you conclude, well, that's just a dead branch. Autumn got up there and saw it off. So we've, we've, we've probably seen it ourselves. And so this illustration is very apt that Jesus is given. So that Jesus is teaching us this. Now, I think it would be important. I know some of you write things down. This is very important. Jesus is teaching that not everyone who is in the covenant is of the covenant. Not everyone who's in the covenant is of the covenant. Now, <clears throat> this is um, this is significant in that. What Jesus is talking about, he's talking about his visible church. And he's talking about his invisible church. Now, th th this, these are terms that our confession uses. Now, you could say, why did they choose this? Well, I, it, they just did. And by the way, this, this illustration of things of the fruit and branches that uh, uh, bear fruit. Do you remember the parable of the sower and the seed? Do you remember that seed that fell on shallow ground? It didn't have root. And when the storm came up, it just, uh, it withered because it didn't have root. You remember when Jess was preaching on this parable? Remember you said there was only one soil that bore fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And the, the lesson is only that last soil 
is the genuine Christian. Because it bears fruit. All the other looked good for a while. The shallow so, uh, soil, it looked good for a while until, tempt, until the storm came against it, or temptation comes, and they give it up. Or it was sown among the thorns, which Jesus says the love of the world, and it choked it out. Only the good soil produced fruit. So what we say when we say that not everyone who is in the covenant is of the covenant, what we're saying is not everyone who is in the visible church is the invisible church. Now, before we take a look at what the confession says, which is where the confession is going to get its theology of chapter 25 of the church. Do you remember what? uh, Turn over to to Romans chapter 9. And look at verses 3 through 8. I want you to see how the unity of the scriptures. And as you probably know, in a lot of my preaching, I like to go to other places of the Bible. Well, there's a reason for that. You know, in our confession, it talks about what is the foremost rule for Bible interpretation. And our confession says, Scripture interprets Scripture. It is its best interpreter of itself. And so, since the Scripture is inerrant, and since God is the author of all of Scripture, there should be a unity, right? There should be a consistency. And it's exciting to see the interrelationship of one part of Scripture to the other. The, the technical theological word for this is called the analogy of faith, meaning Scripture interprets Scripture. So we've been talking about Jesus talks about this vine and the branches, and he's the vine, we're the branches. The being in the covenant, but not of the covenant. Paul really elaborates on this in Romans chapter 9. And let's look at beginning at verse 3 through verse 8 of Romans 9. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews. That's who he's talking about. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, meaning Jesus was a Jew coming from Abraham, the father of the Jews, okay? Who is over God, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now here's the important, really important phrase. For they are not all Israel who are descended 
from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And who do you think is the prime example that he gives here? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Both were in the covenant. Both were in the Old Testament church. But the scripture says, God says, I hated Esau. Esau was a profane man, Hebrews brings out. And so we have, he says, not everyone who is descended, and that was not everyone who's descended from Abraham are true children of Abraham. You got to be a child of promise. And that's why John the Baptist says to the Sadducees and Pharisees, who warns you to flee? You, you got, you're a brood of vipers, is what he called them. Oh, we're children of Abraham. Well, yes, you are physical descendants, but you are hardly children of promise. And God's got an ax, and he's going to cut you down. And he's going to take you, and he's going to throw it into the fire. Turn over to another significant passage that teaches the same thing by the Apostle Paul. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, meaning the Red Sea. And all, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, I mean, this is, a, uh, in one sense, it's a horrifying situation. They were baptized into Moses, who was the head of the old covenant. They were all in union with God, with Moses, in the old covenant. They were in the covenant, but they were not of the covenant because we're going to see the majority refuse to believe. We're going to look at Hebrews in just a little bit that teaches this same truth. 
Now, what that tells us is this. Just because I am physically baptized, does that, does that make me a Christian? Well, no. In fact, our confession is very clear about this. It doesn't. We're not teaching. The Reformed faith is not true. Reformed theology has never taught baptismal regeneration. That at your baptism, you are automatically a genuine Christian. What it means is that when you're baptized, when we baptize children, we have placed them in the covenant. In the covenant. Now, whether they're of the covenant will depend upon, are they, will they, do they prove themselves to be believers and do they bear fruit? So in the Reformed faith, it has always distinguished between what it calls the visible church and by the visible church, well, we'll let the confession read it. I want you to get your uh, Trinity hymnal out. <clears throat> Turn to chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. I'll give you time to get there. It's chapter 25 of the church. Okay. Section one. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now that's the invisible church. Section two. The visible church which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation, meaning it is important to be in the visible church. So the invisible church are the elect who are redeemed by Jesus. The visible church are all those adults and those who have brought their children baptize their children and they are in that visible church. Now the, the, the larger catechism questions, we're going to take a look. Now you don't have it in your Trinity so you're just going to have to follow along with me. It's very good <clears throat> in specifying this distinction between the visible and the invisible church. And I'm going to turn over to We'll start with 
larger catechism question. We'll start with cate- larger, larger catechism question 60, 60. You can look this up for yourself when you get your own copy at home, I know, of the confession. Listen to the question. Can they who never heard the gospel and so know not Jesus Christ nor believe in him be saved by living according to the light of nature? Now, this is going to answer the question. Have you ever had anybody say, what about the heathen over in Africa? It's going to answer that question for you. Answer, they who have never heard the gospel know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him cannot be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone who is the Savior only of his body, the church. Now, here's question 61 of the larger catechism. Are all they saved who hear the gospel and live in the church? I mean, that's an important question, right? Here's the answer. All that hear the gospel and live in the visible church are not saved, but they only who are true members of the church invisible. Question 62, what is the visible church? The visible church is a society made up of all, such as in all ages and places of the world, do profess religion and their children. And then question 63, what are the special privileges of the visible church? I mean, just being the outward church. Here are the privileges of being in the visible church. Answer, the visible church has the privilege of being under God's special care and government, of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints the ordinary means of salvation and offers of grace by Christ to all members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whoever believes in him shall be saved, excluding none that will come to him. Now what that is saying is, there is an advantage of being in a church. There is an advantage being under the preaching of the gospel. There is a reason why as as parents we bring our children and put them under the preaching of the gospel. We baptize them, putting them in the covenant. And we pray for them as parents that as they grow older, they will prove themselves and become, guess what, communing members. Take the Lord's Supper, and the only way we allow them to the Lord's Supper is that they gotta give a profession of faith in Jesus. And then live a life, just like the vows that we're taking today, do you promise to live a life 
as a follower that becomes a follower of Jesus. In other words, bearing spiritual fruit. Now that's the privileges of being in the visible church. Now look at question um, question 64 uh, what is what is the invisible church the invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been are or shall be gathered into one Christ the head So you see, this, what our Westminster Standards brings out very clearly is what the scripture is teaching, is what Jesus is teaching here in in John 15. It's all those passages that I've just had us allude to, what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us. There's this great unity in the word of God. Now, probably next week, I'm not through yet, but next week, we're going to take a look at those, sadly, in the Reformed community that adopted a teaching that was heretical. And they were the the federal vision. We'll talk about that more. I'm going to read you some quotes from these guys to show you just how far, just a couple of how I'm going to let you see their interpretation of John 15 and you compare it to what Jesus said. And it's going to be a far cry from what Jesus said. What we see here, if you look at at John 15, verse 1 Jesus said, well, I am that vine. I'm the real vine. Uh, He presented himself to his disciples as the true vine. Uh, He says, I am the true vine. I'm the real thing. And the branches, he says, uh, you are the branches. He says, my father, not only am I the vine, but my father is the vine dresser. And so what we see here, that the disciples, they will derive their unity with among one another and their fruit-bearing capacity in communion with Jesus as the true vine. And so the church finds its unity and its life and its fertility in Jesus alone. You got to be in Jesus. You got to abide in him. So he is indeed the true vine and the father is the vine dresser. In other words, the the father is the one who is represented here as the vine dresser is one who who tills the ground. Keep in mind, what did Isaiah 5 say that God did? Oh, I I took out all the stony rocks. I I 
tilled up the soil. I made it so it was good. I, I planted uh, the vineyard there. I did all these things. He's the vine dresser. And, and it's God, the Father, who tends to the branches. These branches, uh, they need much attention. Now, I'm not a gardener, but I have learned from some. John, if you got some bush, you got some flower, you ought to cut it back. Well, what do you want to do that for? Just do it. And guess what? All of a sudden, you got these little, little, little sprouts coming out. And you got others, and you go, all of a sudden, your, your, your tree, your branch, your, your, your flower, it's better than it was before because you pruned it. The Father is the vine dresser, and he will prune it so that, if, that's assuming it's alive. Now, if it's dead branch, there's nothing you can do with that. And that's why God says to Israel, you know, I, I tilled it up and I expected it produce fruit. But what did I get? Nothing. So I'm just gonna take it up, throw it into the fire because it's worthless. You know, this tending to the branches spiritually uh, speaking, would be the cleansing of the branches. Remember, Jesus said, you are all clean, but not all of you. Now, how has how Jesus cleansed us? Well, theologically, he justified us. You remember our, our confession, the, the Westminster Divines were very careful in how they, the words that they chose to reflect the theology. And they made a, a fine distinction between justification and sanctification. And if you read the confession, it says justification is an act of God Sanctification is a work of God. And we'll talk about that more probably next week. Well, you're clean, how? Well, you're justified. And that's the dominant idea here. You are justified, not by your own works, but by the work of Jesus done on your behalf and credited to your account as if you had done it yourself. Just read chapter 11 of the Confession on Justification. So the Father is attending to the branches. It is the uh, Father in, in, John 15, in John 14 and 15, it is, remember, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples. Remember, we ran across that. If you look at John 14, verse six, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. In other words, Jesus says, I'm gonna be praying for you and I'm gonna give you another helper. Now we've already said, who is that helper? The Holy Spirit. In fact, John 15 
specifically says it is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends through Jesus who then sends it to us. That is the work of the triune God. Now, a great passage that's helpful, that's helpful for us to see all of this, and it'll be probably the last passage that we'll deal with tonight. Turn in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're going to start at verse 22 down through verse 27. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself among you in their sight. In other words, I'm about to do something incredible. For I will take, verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And get that, clean water? (laughs) Remember Jesus, uh, y'all are clean, but not all of you. But God says, I'm going to, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Let me just comment on this and we'll in for the evening. It's a magnificent passage in the Old Testament teaching the doctrine, we'll put it this way, the Reformed doctrine of regeneration. That's what it is. Israel had defiled itself. So God says, you know what? I'm going to do something incredible. I'm going to bring you back. And there are some, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. And when I I sprinkle this clean water, 
you're never going to be the same. And when I do that, it's going to cause you to be obedient to my law. And when you're obedient to my law, guess what you're going to do? You're going to bear fruit. I mean, this is... um, And so we see that this wonderful work of the Spirit of God. Now, now do you see why, how important it is in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? We talked about several weeks past. Jesus says, I'm leaving you. You're not going to see me again. But I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. Oh, no. I'm going to send you a helper who's going to be in you. What do you think Ezekiel 36 teaches? The Spirit is in you. It will abide with you. You're not going to be the same, and it will be that Spirit. Remember it says, who is it that loves me, Jesus said. Who is it that loves me but he who keeps my commandments? And how we keep God's commandments? In our own strength? I don't think so. We're only able to keep the commandments of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's we were talking about these branches. You got some that are in close communion with Jesus and others aren't. Some that look good for a while, but then prove themselves otherwise. The proof of the pudding will always be, what does your life look like? And we're going to see, we're going to see Further, next week and beyond, more scripture that teaches this incredible thing about the relationship of what it really means to be a Christian. You know what, you know what I found? I'll let me just conclude with this. What I have really found exciting as a, a, as a young Christian, I had a desire to study the Bible. As I started studying the Bible, I began to realize, see, you know, there's a lot of consistency. This passage says this, and and I found this elsewhere in here. And then this passage says the same thing as this one over in the New Testament. Oh, it said the same thing over in the Old Testament. And I got excited. I said, this is is like putting together a big puzzle. And it's exciting to see that unity. I remember you say, what relevance is this? <laughs> I remember when I was in high school. Now, this is public school. Uh, I could do algebra, but for the life of me, I could not do geometry. I mean, it was really bad. And it was halfway through the year that I finally realized that the theorems had something to do to figure out the proofs. <laughs> and... I just didn't get it. I remember growing up, I couldn't get thought problems. I had my older brothers try to help me. It didn't help me. I had my father try to help me, and it didn't help me. At times, he'd get frustrated. He's going upstairs. And I think, I just don't get it. I just, I don't get it. You know what changed? When I became a Christian, 
I realized I began to think better. I go, I can do those math problems after all now. When I was in Corpus Christi, I had, I was talking with the Martinez's one time and they had a friend over who happened to be, had a doctorate in mathematics. And I was telling them about this, how there was a time I just couldn't do math. I couldn't think, I couldn't. But when I was doing scripture and I was doing systematic theology, I said, I began to think better. And he said, well, John, that makes sense. I said, what do you mean? He says, oh, there's a direct correlation with systematic theology in in mathematics. I go, really? Well, I guess that explains it. (laughs) And so it, it is, maybe next week as I bring this out, I want you to be as excited as I was and still am to see the unity of the word of God, to see this teaching, the analogy of faith, the scripture interprets scripture and it's true and it's consistent. It's really exciting. Let's pray. Lord, be with us. We thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for your spirit who brings that word to life. Hallelujah. Amen.